The following podcast is a proud member of the Blue Collar Roots Network. Find all the shows by visiting bluecollarroots.com. Think of this show in this way. Rush Limbaugh and Howard Stern had a child, and that child grew up to have a podcast about building science. This is the opposite of that. Here's Bill Spone. Welcome back to another episode of the Building HVAC Science Podcast. We're trying to create better, more knowledgeable HVAC and building performance technicians by helping the two professions better understand each other with the ultimate goal of making customers happy in the homes they live in and the buildings they work in. Okay, so we're talking about customers. That's sort of our statement piece for the podcast. Today, I'm so pleased to welcome my friend Steve Kasha to the podcast. You may have heard of him. He focuses on training customer service skills, especially in the world of HVAC. Now, as a master communications trainer, he gets his points across via memorable storytelling. He holds awesome in-person training sessions. Now, he's been to True Tech Tools twice to train our team. And he has books, newsletters, materials, videos, all of which can be found through his website and YouTube channel. And there's links in the show notes. His three key principles of customer service problem handling are contain, qualify, and correct. A lot of what he teaches might even be considered life skills. You need to get a dose of Steve if you can. You'll find Steve presenting at conferences and in the media and other videos via other organizations like GACA and the new flat rate. Just look around. You can get a dose of Steve fairly easily. So let's branch off here and get into the conversation with Steve Kasha about creating superb customer service. Good morning, Steve. Morning. How you doing there? Good. How are you? Terrific, Bill. Where are you calling in from? Where do you call home? Just outside of Philadelphia in Delaware County, which is in southeastern Pennsylvania. That's great. We're going to talk today about soft skills, disciplines for career success. And I think it's always interesting to explore what led the arc of your career to this point. Do you think there's anything as you're growing up that you could look back and say, hey, I think I'm here because of something you experienced or did when you were younger? Yes. The main pivotal point occurred just over 30 years ago when I administered a factory recall for a consumer electronics company for whom I was the service manager. We had a defective printed circuit board. And once the failure rate exceeded 45%, I was told to get them all back to the factory. And when that happens with a product that costs almost $2,000, you've got upset customers, some of whom go to the Better Business Bureau or their state attorney general, or they contact a lawyer. And you start to get these interactions that are not pleasant. And at that time, I was just a guy in my early 30s. And that expression, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. (laughs) It played out for me because I was getting beat up every day getting threatening letters from lawyers and, again, uh, all these claims from Better Business Bureau. And you handle things one at a time. And a couple of things I learned during that factory recall was always make yourself doing something constructive for the customer, even if it's not what the customer wants. Put yourself in a position to be offering options and solutions. And here's the phrase that made the most difference was, here's what I can do. And when you're saying what you can do, 
and you're doing it with a level of honesty and sincerity, customers feel he's not giving me what I want, but I can tell this guy is really trying. That was what I learned. It didn't happen overnight. It was months of enduring this factory recall. But after the whole thing was done, which took a while, I came through that situation much better informed and with disciplines I felt I could write about because I felt I had gained knowledge very few people had in the service industry. So this is like 1989, 1990, and there really wasn't a lot of books out about service or videos. It was something you did by picking up the phone. And back then they assumed anyone could pick up a phone, just hire people, put them on the phones and let them talk to customers. But I learned there were disciplines involved in that. And I started to write about it. I published magazine articles. And then after a couple of years, got the crazy idea to write a book. And that was a separate story, just trying to get published. And the first book was published in 1992. But I would say where I am today hinges back to that pivotal time of enduring something that was very ugly very personally adverse. But if you can come through the other side, okay, you've got some assets that you can use for future career development. We've had similar experiences at True Tech going back where we had some defective product. And it seems like as long as we approached it in a similar fashion, we could actually build the relationship. Coming out of it, the relationship actually was stronger, has been stronger. That is the thing I found also, and what I learned repetitively was when you take an emotionally upset customer and listen, convey empathy, be an active listener, that emotion inside the customer is what will actually turn them towards you because when they feel someone really cares, now they latch onto you emotionally. And there's a 180 degree difference between being upset with the company and feeling like I'm always going to buy from this company now because I know they can help. And emotions really can work to your advantage if you're constructive in the listening, the empathy, conveying options, and being honest and sincere about it. Yeah, I think that's part of the key. You're not just flipping them. You're expressing honesty, sincerity options. And sometimes a lot of it amounts, it is this true that it amounts to the listening skills. You have to be a good reflective listener and you got to be careful about interjecting too soon. You got to let them speak their piece. Is that? It's called letting the customer get to the top of their hill. (laughs) In one of the courses I just created for the HVAC manufacturers, I have this illustration of a hill. When a customer vents or when they are conveying the symptom of their broken product, They're climbing a hill and I convey to service professionals, let a customer get to the top of their hill. Let them tell the whole story. Now, while they're climbing, you can acknowledge, you can say things like, oh, I see. Oh, okay. Oh, it happened twice. Okay. You can just acknowledge because silence is the worst thing. If a customer is 20 seconds into their rant and they're not hearing anything, the customer stops and goes, hello, hello, you still there? So you have to interject every 10 seconds or so, just so they know you're there, not to offer a solution, but just to acknowledge that you're understanding what they're saying. You spoke of started to write the articles, started to collect these disciplines. Did you ever jump into areas of human psychology 
to study or to self-study? I did, and I did it in the best way I could. I bought every audio tape. Back then, they were cassettes. So I bought every audio tape I could get. One of the ones that was very, very helpful was by Brian Tracy, and he's still around. His program back then is called The Psychology of Achievement, and it was one of the most beneficial programs. I must have listened to it scores of times. I've memorized much of it. But it really opened myself up to what makes people tick, what made myself tick. And the other thing I had to study was the physical anatomy of our bodies. Because if you're on the phones, especially, the reality is your fight or flight mechanism is being triggered when you're getting yelled at. And that fight or flight mechanism is very helpful if you're outside running away from a <laughs> a dog or bear or something. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's very helpful for that. But in your cubicle, it actually gets to be a problem because your body wants to do something very physical. So if you're on the phone, what happens is your pace of speech starts to accelerate. You start to breathe faster. Your heart is beating faster. It's pouring sugar into the blood. Insulin is secreted to absorb the blood sugar. Epinephrine is secreted. And you've got all these metabolic changes that enable you to be very, very physical. But your job at that point is to do the exact opposite. You're supposed to slow everything down. You're supposed to be empathetic. You're supposed to be listening. So understanding the anatomy and then being able to teach that to other service professionals was another key part of what I had to learn as a discipline. And it all comes under the heading of my overall model, which I called contain, qualify, and correct. Three key things. You contain something by keeping it within fixed limits, the way you would put fluid into a container so it doesn't spill. So containing means if the situation is bad, your job is now to make sure it doesn't get worse. So even though you feel your heart rate is accelerating, you force yourself to breathe slowly. Slow down your pace of speech. Listen more. Speak less. Think rationally. And rational thinking during those interactions is when you think to yourself, oh man, this guy sounds pissed. I've done this before. I can do this. Let me just slow down, listen more, speak less. So that's the containment part. Now, once you've got it contained, the customer reaches the top of their hill, and now they're saying, okay, what are you going to do about this? Now you start to qualify. Now you ask the questions you need to know as an expert in that product or that industry. What are the questions you need to ask that tell you what you need to know so you can then correct? So in that sequence, it works to your advantage. First you contain, then you qualify, then you correct. And the sequence is important because if you qualify too soon, you won't get the answers you need. If the customer is upset and they're ranting and they haven't reached the top of their hill and you ask a technical question about what's happening, you'll get answers that aren't very helpful. The customer will yell things like, it happens every time. It never works. It's always broken. And that doesn't help you. So the sequence is important. And by the way, I'm conveying this in a matter of seconds. Sure. This is not easy. It takes weeks of discipline to develop these habits. But people can do it. If you're sincere, 
and disciplined about it, and you have responsible management at your organization that leads by example and holds a high bar and establishes with employees that regardless of what this industry standards are, we're going to be so much better than that. You raise a higher bar and just keep pointing everyone in that direction. That's a pretty long answer, but. No, it's, you've got a very interesting discipline that you deal in. I've known you for probably 10, 12 years. We've talked a lot of times and the part about the physical anatomy never clicked before. And I find that truly fascinating because it seems like part of soft skills is managing yourself. How much would you say is managing yourself 50-50 versus managing the customer and the interaction? Self-control is about 100%. (laughs) You can't control the customer. No, right. The other concept I train is what I call the sphere of control. So if you can imagine, you and I are inside of a sphere, a bubble, and we have control over everything within that sphere. Everything outside of the sphere, like the weather, the traffic, the equipment, the product, the customer's behavior, everything outside of that sphere, we have no control over. Therefore, you've got to be 100% focused on what you can control. So that's your attitude. That's your self-discipline. That is so many things. I mean, I can go into what you had for breakfast that morning. That's within your sphere of control. Making sure you're eating enough protein in the morning, which is the mental food that your brain needs to operate well. It only takes like three seconds to blow it. (laughs) If you lose your cool, you lose self-control, you can blow it. The self-control is about maintaining the self-calm and the ability to just keep your mouth shut. Even though you think you've got the answer to the customer's problem, if they haven't gotten to the top of their hill yet, let them get there. Yeah, the phrase know-it-all should be out of your mind. Absolutely. Yeah. Even though you are, even though you're very technical and very good at what you do. Right. And you could be armed with everything that your company provides to solve these customer situations, but you have to wait to do the correction once you've qualified and you've contained the issue. Very good. We're talking here in late the fall of 2021. We're still meandering through the pandemic, if you will. You have a very hands-on skill set that you train on. Can you talk about how that's changed in the last 18 to 20 months? Yeah, I'd say in the last 18 months, I've always, beyond 18 months, for decades, I've taught my clients to write down their standard operating procedures. Write down what you do. It doesn't have to be elaborate. It doesn't have to be 20 pages. It could be two pages. But write down what's your standard greeting on the phone. What are the things you say when a customer complains about a specific product? What if a customer is past due on their payables? What are the things you should be saying? And in the last 18 months, having documented procedures benefited my clients who made the time to do that because everything changed 18 months ago. And if you had documented procedures of what you were doing when COVID hit, my well-informed clients went to their standard operating procedure. They had a meeting and they said, okay, here's the way we used to do things. Now let's revise this. Instead of saying this, let's say this. And they had something to work with. 
those clients who had nothing and COVID hit, they were scrambling. They didn't know what to do. And so that was one of the biggest things I've seen is me reinforcing even more. If you document what you do, then you can do what you document. Again, it doesn't have to be elaborate, but write down your standard operating procedures for what you say, for what you do, how you handle a return back to your facility, what your freight methods are. Just get everything written down so we have a some kind of a standard, and then you can revise that when something like COVID happens. So that's one of the big things that arose. The other one is use of technology. I started doing a lot more virtual consulting and training. So lots of training over Zoom and over other platforms with my clients who understand and believe that the cost of training is more important than ignorance. It's better to pay to keep your employees well-informed. So that also changed. There was lots more of that happening for me. And then the last thing I would say is that in the world of COVID, we had to be that much more attentive to details. When you're dealing with people's health, people's families, on the residential side, you're dealing with families and family members. On the commercial side, you're dealing with tenants in a building and the facilities manager and security protocols. And the attention to details went way up. People were much more attentive to what you were doing now. So my clients had to be better about their pre-arrival calls, about being outside a customer's home and before they enter saying, "Is there are there any rooms that you want me to stay away from? Is there anything? Just assume the customer is hypersensitive to the whole COVID thing. You would be proactive by informing the customer that you are wearing a mask and you have just uh, sanitized your hands and just assume customers are expecting the worst and be proactive about all of that. So those are just a few of the things that have come up in the last 18 months. But business has changed a lot, Bill. In the last five years is where I've seen the big exponential change in so many areas of our industry. When Amazon started to leverage GPS technology and sending us an email or a text with a GPS coordinate of where the truck was. Yeah, where your package is, yeah. Yeah, that was like pretty cool. My message to lots of my oil delivery clients was like, why can't we do that? If a customer's oil tank may be running low, the customer gets anxious, how can we use that? So things really started to change by those companies who were raising the bar. And I think more than anything, what companies like Amazon focused in on was convenience. They understood that people are buying online because they want convenience. They don't want to go out and shop. So they want to see everything at their fingertips. And then in our industry, that started to manifest into Amazon customers going online to buy an 80-gallon water heater. And Amazon asking them, do you want us to have it installed for you? By the way, we can take away your old water heater. And now that same customer who was used to calling a contractor can now experience the convenience of buying the water heater online. So things really started to accelerate about five years ago. We started seeing all these changes happen. And being in an online business like I am, it's also about confidence in the vendor. So there has to be a balance between what the customer believes is going to happen 
And that comes usually through some kind of communication, maybe reviews, referrals, that kind of thing that they can then believe that they're working with a good partner. Is that any aspect of the soft skills? Do you ever incorporate that in your training, getting the review information back from customers? Oh, yeah. When I started to see all these changes being driven by customer convenience, I came up with this model for how the better we are internally among ourselves, how we share information with our coworkers, with other departments. When we use information from the field consistently on what customers are saying, you won't get 100% return on that. But when you get it and you use it and you apply it and you share it, again, internally, the consistency we develop internally about our standard operating procedures, our methods of doing business, The way I teach this is that consistency is becoming the new empathy. We show our customers we care by doing it the same way every time. And we do it the same way every time or we do it better than the last time. And doing it better is based on that feedback we get from the field. So getting the feedback is one thing, but how we share it and how we implement it with every area of the company is the key thing. This all started... I'm going to say about almost 10 years ago, Bill, where where the assumption was you train service employees to treat the external customers better. That's why people hired me to do that. Yeah. Right. Yet, when I would go in to do that, I would sit down with the company owner and he had maybe like 30, 40 trucks and maybe 100 employees. And I would hear the same thing from every company owner. They would say, We've got this internal communication problem. (laughs) We've got this issue. Can you help us with that? But it was like every company. And I started to say to myself, I think we would be much better at helping the external customer if we can first fix ourselves, fix how we communicate with each other on the inside. So that's when this whole thing started. And that's when I started to see the little cracks in the wall about a technician who feels rushed. He doesn't write down the serial number of the unit he just worked on. And he he assumes that people in the office are going to figure it out. Or he doesn't write down the date code of something, or he doesn't update the sticker on the outside of a water heater he just did maintenance on. And in the absence of information, a couple of things happen. In the absence of information, people start to make it up. Or if people have to look it up, they start to have frustrated feelings about the person who was supposed to do it. So now you've got coworkers upset with other coworkers because they're not being complete. And it's not like people out in the field are the only ones being incomplete. Sometimes dispatch isn't always attentive to the geography of a town when they're looking at the stop someone has to make. And you talk to a technician and he goes, man, I've never done so much driving in my life to get from one place to the next. So it's the internal side that has to be fixed first. So that has been my big part of my curriculum when I train contractors is working on the inside. And it's not easy because they've been doing what they've been doing for a long time. So the inside processes are key. I was just working with a large company up in New York. And one of the processes they've always had had an issue with was the onboarding of a new big commercial assignment. How do you onboard that? How do we get the zoning permits? Which vendors are we going to use? All the scheduling that goes into that. And they knew it was an issue, but no one ever sat down to make it a process. And all the subject matter experts were there. 
it was just a matter of getting someone who doesn't work there to sit down with people to create the flow of these sequential events. So it's not just commercial, it's a residential also. Sure. They had all the parts of the machine, but they hadn't assembled it yet. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's another big thing that happens. Yesterday, I was talking with Gary Bick from Rankin Technical School in St. Louis. So they train hundreds of mechanical technicians there. And he was telling me a story about, I was talking to him about soft skills and one of my textbooks. And he said, there's this one technician at this utility and everyone knows he's not that good. He's not as good as the other technicians, yet he's the one customers ask for <laughs> when customers call because he's got the soft skills things down. Customers like him. Personal hygiene, better first impression, listens more. He just, those things happen. It's an interesting scenario that I'm sure lots of other companies can speak about. You are focused in the trades mainly? I mean, this sounds like this is universal application. I mean, you can even use this in interpersonal relationships, but what you're talking about here, you could probably avoid a few divorces if you followed what Steve teaches. <laughs> <laughs> you do focus on the trades though. That would be... Yeah, on the mechanical trades. It's more of a marketing focus. When I wrote the HVAC customer service handbook, not knowing it was going to become what it has, it taught more than 200 colleges, I chose that mechanical industry as my focus. And then specific to entrepreneurship, what I learned was having a niche and excluding other industries is actually a better strategy than trying to be everything to everyone. So niches are very, very deep. I would say they're almost bottomless. So they're very narrow, but they're very deep. So it's worked to my advantage. People are always saying to me, well, why don't you write another version of your book for this industry and that industry? Because I've got so much work in this industry. And the marketing is very easy because I'm well-known and the textbook is out there. So it, it works to my advantage. But yes, I focus on this industry. It's not just HVAC. It's also plumbing. It's electrical. It involves propane, fuel oil. It involves sheet metal. It involves commercial, residential. It really is a deep niche. It goes all the way down there. But it's so impactful. I mean, this trade, I love it because it's all about people. You're helping people or you're helping businesses do what they have to do. It is. And the stories are just, I have to applaud the workers in this industry. You talk to a plumber who gets a phone call at two in the morning and he's got to go out because someone's basement is flooded. Or you talk to the electrician who's grandfather did a lot of free work during the Great Depression. People didn't have money back then. They were bartering for services, but he was out there doing work for customers because they didn't have the money. And now two generations later, a lot of those customers in that city still call that same company because that's who mom and dad set the call. They remember they it. call him because they remember it. But you've probably heard these same stories. It's just a great industry people who aren't afraid to get their hands dirty, who get up all hours of the day and night to do what needs to be done. And it's amazing now with social media, we start to see some of these illustrations of people working late at night. I just saw some about New Jersey, some oil tanks that got lifted in basements because of flooding and just totally trashed the equipment. They're just there to help. So we talked about who you train in general and the topics. How do you train? What are your modes of delivery? Let's step through those. Okay, so when I do an on-site seminar, 
It starts with the needs assessment. So understanding what their specific needs are, understanding the company model, the size of the company. You got to know where they're at in order to move them to a different position. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so, so it starts there. My company creates a curriculum workbook. Because I'm old school, I like having a workbook. And I like people in my seminars to be writing things down, to be taking notes. But there is also team exercises. So my mode is very interactive. I use flip charts to create teams. So if I have a class of 20 or 30 people, there might be four or five flip chart stands around the room, and I'll divide the room into different teams, and I give them exercises to do. The exercises might be about follow-up. They might be about adding value, about listening more, about internal issues. And what's interesting is that, say the 30 people in the room are from five different companies. Say I'm working with a supply house who invited five different contractors to come. So you've got six people from five companies and each team is comprised of all five companies. What surprises me every time is all of those five companies have the same issues, (laughs) is that they're working at the flip chart and they're all talking about the same issues and they're writing them down. So that's interesting. So people learn more when they talk to their counterparts. So I know lots and I can talk all day about this, but people are going to learn more from their counterparts. So having these teamwork exercises gives them time to talk to each other. That's what becomes memorable. So now when they go back to their office, they're going to say to their supervisor, you know, I was at this exercise with Joe from our competition. And they've got the same issues we do. That becomes memorable. They remember that. So I steer them in a specific direction. And there's a workbook. There are teamwork exercises. I also use lots of animation. And I use audio. I use phone calls, phone call examples people can listen to. And now we talk about it. What should have been done differently there based on what we just learned? I teach some practicum. Then we apply it. We listen to a call. Okay, now that you're the expert, you just learned about this, what would you urge this person to say differently next time? And now they start to speak up and they're doing that. So the sessions are very interactive. And there's also video and there's animation and there's an exam at the end. So I I do it old school because that's my style. And it's been very effective. So I get good feedback. And the big difference is whether or not a client is going to take it to heart. And that brings up the whole issue of management in this industry. You've probably been aware a lot of the supervisors and managers got their position because they were a good technician and people thought he was smart, so they promoted them. But they never really were taught in the disciplines of management and the setting goals, setting expectations, taking corrective action, that type of thing. So Management is really the important part. If you're going to make the investment to hire someone like me, then there needs to be some follow-up afterwards in, in making sure we are now doing something different and better than we did before and something measurable. Are we getting less complaints now? Are we on those phone calls that we're handling in which we are letting customers vent more, are we getting fewer escalated calls to the supervisor? Something measurable is what's best. And then the other thing 
I meant to say in my mode of training, is storytelling. That in itself is a separate public speaking discipline. So I've taken courses in how to create and tell a story. And I teach a class on public speaking that includes how to tell stories, which is an important part of training. So people can hire you to do contract training on site, and you've done some virtual training during the pandemic. You said you also have books. Does this all come together on your website? It does, yeah. So my website is just my last name. So it's kashi.com. It comes together there. And I would say the key thing that enables any business to be successful, and it certainly worked for me, is the multiple streams of revenue model. Something I learned back in the 1990s, not to rely on one way to make money. So I do the seminars, but I also have online courses and I have textbooks and I have DVDs. So there's lots of different ways for revenue to come into the company. And it's, I would advise anyone looking to become self-employed to adopt the multiple streams of revenue model. It takes a while to build up, but every now and then what'll happen, and I sent this video out last week, what'll happen is what I call the perfect storm. So the perfect storm is what happens when there's a culmination of factors that results in an exponential change. And it's what happened to me 18 months ago. So I had been creating online courses since 2014. And it was a nice stream of revenue, not huge, but a nice stream of revenue. Well, when COVID hit and people couldn't go to public seminars anymore, the revenue from my online courses just went up exponentially. Now, that never would have happened if the courses were not there. So every now and then, there's a perfect storm. You get this culmination of factors. And if you're there with the right media, with the right ideas at the right time, you get that exponential bounce. And it's still there. You had confidence in what you've done, too. I know you're not all about just training. You have some hobbies, the things that you enjoy doing. A couple things I can think of. Why don't you share those with us? Things that actually that come out in your newsletters and things like that. Yeah, sure. About 10 years ago, I bought a kayak <laughs> for the first time. And there was lots of places to kayak here. So I started doing it and I started to develop a real enjoyment of the outdoors more than I ever had. So then I, I bought a pickup and then I bought this tent that I could assemble in the bed of my pickup. It, it only cost 350 bucks. It was a, so then I started camping. So camping, kayaking, bicycle riding. I said, man, I really like the outdoors. And then I started to learn about more places I could go to do this. And then as I started to watch YouTube videos of other people doing this, I noticed there was a lot of new equipment coming out. I said, These aluminum campers you could put in the bed of your pickup, they only weighed a few hundred pounds and they were a pop-up and you could create a little cabin. So I bought one, more than a few hundred. It was a few thousand dollars. So I made the investment in that. And all of this corresponded with me driving around the country rather than flying. In 2014, I experimentally started to drive and realized it was a much better marketing strategy because I used to fly over a lot of demand in my territory. When I was driving, I could stop places and earn extra revenue. So the outdoors has become my big hobby. I just came back from a five-month trek. Three of those months were in Arizona, Utah, and Wyoming, three of the most gorgeous months of my life. 
So it was really, really good. My wife is not really interested in this. It's a rather primitive way to camp because I am off the grid. I've got two solar panels on the roof of my camper, a third solar panel that can go outside. I've got five lithium batteries. I've got extra water containers. So it's I can be totally off the grid, which can be primitive. But I'll tell you, if you like the outdoors, man, it's cool. <laughs> it's good. Being in touch with nature, does that help in your creative aspect? Because you're always working on new materials. Is your mind clear in things that you can go back to work with a renewed vigor? Absolutely. It's not just for work. It's also for my life. You get to sum things up for yourself and you get to think of thoughts you haven't thought in a while. And I could tell so many stories about this. I mean, I was in Moab, Utah, camping along the Colorado River alongside a canyon that went up about 300 feet, straight up out of the ground, 90 degrees, straight up, just awesome. I camped there for six days. And my big concern during that time was, I hope I never forget this. I always want to remember being here. Those are the thoughts you have that that something you're experiencing is so profound to your life. You don't ever want to forget it. You also love music. I've seen you perform. Yeah, I do. I was a professional musician back in the 1970s. However, because I started practicing again about 10 years ago, I've become a better piano player now than I was back then. I'm playing more classical pieces. I've really developed an affection for George Gershwin and his style. And I don't play as well as he did, but boy, I love his compositions. I mean, the way he puts notes together. Boy, it's, yeah, so I enjoy doing that. At this stage of my life, that's a nice thing to be able to do. You share some of these experiences in your newsletters and that people can subscribe to that at kashia.com? Yeah, sure. They can just put their name and their email address in. They'll be part of what I send out. And it all goes together. The whole piano playing thing, for five months, I didn't play piano. I was out living off the grid, right? And then I came back and I sat down at the piano and I started playing. (laughs) Why? Because of muscle memory. Because we develop habits over years. Same thing if you were doing customer service over the phone. If you're disciplined about it, if you develop those habits, you also develop muscle memory. You don't forget those things. So developing good habits and good disciplines is a great success model. I've experienced that at times as, did I just say that? It's like, where did that come from? <laughs> yeah, I, I wasn't thinking that, but it just came out. So there's a lot of trust and faith in self, in others, in developing this communication. This has been a wonderful conversation. Steve, I always enjoy speaking with you. I hope to see you in person soon. My my pleasure. I look forward to seeing you also. Any thoughts you'd like to summarize and share with the listeners in summary? The key things to focus on relevant to soft skills and being in a technical industry is that It is the soft skills that will advance your career more than your technical skills. So yes, you want to be a good troubleshooter. You want to learn how to diagnose. However, you will be promoted and you will be valued based on your soft skills more than almost anything else. So focus on that and focus on the reality that we must keep reading new books, taking new certifications learning new strategies because nothing ever stays the same. Life is in perpetual forward motion. So we've got to keep learning and advancing ourselves. When you think you're in a static mode that you're staying the same, you're actually going backwards because everything else is going forward. 
So those are the things I can use as a summary for this. Excellent. Well, again, like I said, I enjoyed this. I hope our listeners enjoy this, get something out of it. And of course, go to kasia.com, C-O-S-C-I-A.com. Learn more about what Steve's got to offer. Sign up for his newsletter. It's free. And he is always sharing little tidbits that I find enjoyable. And that's why he's on the podcast is because I kept seeing these things going, man, I got to get this guy's knowledge out there. I got to share with more people. This is really great stuff. Terrific. Well, thank you so much for inviting me, Bill. You're welcome. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the Building HVAC Science Podcast. If you like what you heard today and you're not subscribed to the podcast, please consider doing so by typing Building HVAC Science and clicking that subscribe button. If you want to keep with other things that I find interesting, follow what we do on Facebook by typing in Building HVAC Science in the Facebook search bar. There's a lot of other great trade-related resources and influencers out there. HVACR School, HVAC Shop Talk, Stephen Rarden's channel, HVAC Reefer Guy, Tool Pros, Service Business Mastery, Quality HVAC, HVAC Overtime, HVACR Videos, Corbett and Grace Lunsford, and of course, AC Service Tech, Craig Migliaccio, coming up on another episode of the Building HVAC Science Podcast. Again, thank you for listening here today. The Building HVAC Science Podcast is a production of True Tech Tools Limited. Until next time, take care. Thank you.